Father, thank you for this morning. Uh, we thank you for your word. It really is a lamp unto our feet. It really does give us clarity when life gets really complex. And I ask God that you would instruct us this morning. Lord, I pray that you'd speak through me and in spite of me. And I pray that you would allow us to, to receive what you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, guys. Well, um, if you are new, we are in a series in Paul's letter to the Romans in the New Testament. It's a series called Gospel Depth. And right now we are in a mini-series, Romans 12 to 16, called Relate, where Paul moves from what Jesus has done for us in the gospel to how we are called to respond to that same gospel. And so the ethic of the New Testament, especially, essentially it's the, the practical part of the book, the ethic of the New Testament is essentially this. God has loved you, and you didn't deserve it. Now, love others in a way that reflects how you have been loved. That's a gospel ethic uh, in a nutshell. Um, people who don't have money can't invest money. I know Royce was talking about, like, the tanking markets and stuff, and uh, I guess saw, like, the crypto markets were crashing uh, and I was telling Clive, I was like, dude, if you want to you buy some crypto, now it's time to do it. And he's like, yeah. But then he realized he only had so much money. He's like, uh, I've only got a few dollars here, Dad. But that sounds good long term if I could do it. So, so, so again, you can't invest what you do not have. And people who run on a love deficit cannot invest their love into others. You cannot give what you don't have. It's like that hurt people, hurt people. Man, loved people, love people. And the story of the scriptures is that we have been and are currently receiving insane amount of, amounts of love, whether we're always aware of it or not. And as we, we learn to receive and abide in that love, we'll have a whole lot of love to get to others. Um, even people who get on our nerves, even people who disagree with us on political or social issues, even people who have different stances on whatever, 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 so the gospel gives us a competency and an ability to live well in a culture where it feels really hard to live and love well right now. So what Paul's going to get into is really, really helpful for us in Romans 12 through 15. And, 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 and before I get into that passage, I want to read one other passage of Scripture. And it's Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 16. And Paul, writing to another church, says this. He says, therefore, as God's chosen ones, that God chose you if you're in Christ. He says, holy and dearly loved. Holy, you've been set apart and you're loved deeply by the God of the universe. To, to, to that person, and if you're in Christ, that's you. Some of us live our entire life trying to become lovable. And maybe it was a message we received from our, our parents or a caregiver at, our, at, at an early age implicitly or explicitly or through abuse or abandonment or apathy, we, we got this idea in our heads somehow, some way that we weren't lovable. I'm not reading from Colossians anymore, just to be clear. I'm commenting on verse 12. But, but the truth of the New Testament says, like, your identity right now is you are dearly loved. You might not always feel dearly loved. Life in a fallen world is hard and complex and painful. But what it isn't is able to take away the fact that you are dearly loved loved. Your own sin can't keep you from being dearly loved. Neither can your suffering. Now our suffering and our sin, uh, I've heard it said this way before, this was helpful to me, that, that God's love is like the sun. It is always shining, but, there are, but, but your sin and struggle can, can kind of create 
clouds that make it hard to see or feel what is happening. And the, and the journey of discipleship is learning to move those clouds out of the way and be able to experience his love in, in a deep way. But that love's there whether we feel it or not. That's what I want you to catch. So again, I'll reread verse 12. Therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved, this is who you are, and he says something to do, put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a grievance against another, just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you are also to forgive. You see this gospel ethic. You've been treated one way. You've become something. Now love a- another way. Now again, with this, just, just verses 12 through 13, family, if we lived this out in our culture, would it stand out right now? What do you think? Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. But too often, people who claim to be Christians don't look anything like this, and they're real loud. They're loud on social media. They're loud on podcasts. They're, they're loud at Thanksgiving dinners. And then they mix up Jesus in, 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 by their conduct to make Jesus look like he's someone he isn't or that he represents something that he doesn't. And so in, in this part of Colossians, Paul is saying God has done something for you. This is who you are in light of that, and this is how you are called to treat the people around you based on who they are and who you are in Christ. And this passage in Colossians is essentially a mini version of what Paul has done in the entire letter to the Romans that we've been studying all year. And so Paul has moved from unpacking all that God has done in Jesus to save and love us in Romans 1 to 11 to teaching us how to love one another in Romans 12 to 16. He's teaching us how to relate, relate to one another and the people in the world around us. And so this portion of Paul's letter teaches the church how to live life together as a diverse, sinful, yet saints, church family. And last week I talked about how the New Testament's dominant metaphor for the church is the household or family of God, the oikos of God. And we talked about this idea that family is a loaded word, right? Family is, is low. It's, it's more stuffed with meaning than a, a turkey is with stuffing on Thanksgiving. That family table feels, feels loaded. And it's, to some people, the word family uh, connotes feelings of security or safety or support. But for other people, the concept of family represents insecurity, abuse, animosity, or unmet longings. And for most of us, our view of family is probably a combination of good and bad because families, like churches, are made up of people who are neither fully good or fully bad. You've never met a human that was fully bad. I know you think you might have. You haven't. You've also never met a a human who was fully good, even if you wish you were that. Humans are walking dichotomies. Everyone you have ever met is made in the image of God, meaning they are worthy of love, dignity, and respect. And they are givers of love, dignity, and respect. They are capable of beautiful, creative acts of love. There's that potential in every human being because they're made in the image of God. But everyone you've ever met is also thoroughly marred by being born into a fallen world, which means they are capable of ugly, cruel, petty, selfish acts. 
Followers of Jesus, by the way, are no different in this way. Where they are different is by being united to Jesus through the gospel. They are now connected to the Holy Spirit, who is slowly but surely performing a heart surgery, theologians call progressive sanctification, where we are slowly becoming like Jesus, love perfected, becoming the people God created us to be originally, people of wonder and joy and love and peace. And so we can see the good and beauty in people, but we also often experience the residue of the fall in them and in us, if we're honest. So no family is all good or all bad because they're made up of beautiful image bearers who also happen to still sin. But that being said, just because no family is perfect does not mean that there aren't some people or families that are healthier than others. As a matter of fact, I have heard countless stories of abuse and abandonment, and the victim shares how they were impacted with the person who abused or abandoned them, and they are met with a response that's, I'm not perfect. There's no perfect family. Dude, I'm not asking for perfect. (laughs) You abused me. I'm not asking for perfect. You crushed me. Saying I'm not perfect, that's not repentance, nor is it kind of the Kaizen growth mindset approach. An imperfect family or church who are being sanctified and have a trajectory towards wholeness and holiness is much healthier than a family that is stagnant and stuck in areas of dysfunction and unhealthy relational patterns. You need to hear that, okay? No one is perfect. No family is perfect. No church is perfect. But there are healthier ones and there are unhealthier ones. So we're not talking about being a perfect church or a perfect family, but we are talking about an imperfect family that is learning and committed to the study of learning to love one another well. And so when we fail to love one another well, we do reparative work. We, we apologize and we make real changes and we give people permission to hold us accountable so that we can love deeply. So in Romans 12, we've been looking at what the, what the markers are of an imperfect but healthy church family. What should that look like? And so last week, um, I got into a, a couple markers, and I said there's probably four markers in this specific area of Romans that I wanted to highlight. And, and I said that, that healthy church families are, are marked by patience. That was the whole sermon last week, patience. This week, we're going to talk about generosity. Next week, we'll talk about hospitality. And the following week, we'll talk about empathy. But all four of those are found in this text. And so healthy church families, uh, they're marked by generosity. And if we have time, but I don't think we will, hospitality. So number one, generosity. Um, Romans chapter 12, verse 13, Paul says this. He says, this is our entire text for today. Share with the saints in their needs. Pursue hospitality. Share with the saints and their needs. Pursue hospitality. So again, healthy church families are marked by first generosity and second hospitality. And we'll start with generosity. Paul says to share with the saints in their needs. Now that's New Testament speak for meeting the practical needs of one another in the church. 
meeting the practical needs of one another in the church. Now, I don't have a, um, Paul here indicates that our lives should not consist of only words, but matched with action. And earlier when Maria preached, she talked about how um, love should be genuine, which means it's, it's not just something you say, it's something you do. It's not hypocritical. Um, it should be marked by actions. And most scholars, by the way, see a distinction between sh- um, sharing, sharing and meeting the needs of the saints and pursuing hospitality. Paul's not just being repetitive here, because in the Bible, hospitality typically means love for the outsider. It's a welcoming in, which we'll talk about next week a lot. And then there's this taking care of the needs of the saints is how we care for each other inside of God's family, the church, those who currently claim a, uh, a commitment to Jesus. So opening our homes and hospitality is how we show love to people outside the church primarily. Now, here's what I want you to know. The order of this is important. We have to take care of each other first. There are a lot of people I love and care about, but I have to take care of my family first. If my family is stable, we we then have margin to reach out to love others well. Does that make sense? Uh, And by the way, if I'm not healthy, I can't love my family well. And if I don't love my family well, Paul says I have no business leading this church or worrying about my neighbors, or my neighbor's kids, or my nieces and my nephews. I have some amazing nieces and nephews. I have some amazing um, people in my life that I love deeply, but I have to start with uh, the people I'm most committed to. And so Paul said, and that's because we're family. Paul says there should be no needy here. We should be committed to each other in such a way that we bear each other's burdens together. That could be a financial burden, or a health burden, or a problem um, with someone's family. When that happens, others in the church should come alongside to help bear that burden. And that love and commitment to each other should then spill out into hospitality, to to love to those outside of the church. Now, again, we're going to do a deep dive into hospitality next week, a message that's been on my heart for months now for our church. Just been stirring and stirring and stirring. But today, I just want to look at generosity. Now, again, we taught on generosity for weeks, so I don't want to belabor this point But the teaching of the scripture is that God is the owner of everything in this earth and that you and I, as people made in his image, are just stewards, which means we manage someone else's money. And so we ask Jesus, how do you want me to use your money, your stuff, your house? And by the way, we have countless stories in this church of people letting people stay with them or people letting people borrow cars for weeks or even months at a time. As a church, we've given away tens of thousands of dollars to support people when they were struggling financially and couldn't pay their bills or their rent or medical bills or therapy or whatever it was. But it's not just how we spend the church's money kind of from a central organizational budget. It's how we spend the money that's been entrusted to us personally that, may, that stays in our accounts. Now, it's not just money, by the way. It could also be practical needs. Not everyone has a ton of margin financially to give. For those who do, there's, a, there's more of a calling on you. There, there's more, um, you have more responsibility. But for those who have left financial margin, I still want to say that generosity can be a big part of your life. There's emotional, emotional generosity where you encourage people and build them up and listen to them. There's generosity of time. I'm willing to actually make time for you. Money can always grow. Time can't. Um, by the way, this isn't like, uh, I also want to say this, it's, it's, I do think there is a rubber meets the road to love when it comes to finances. So I don't want to go, I'm not really, I don't give money. I just give my time and I have a ton of money. Uh, again, it, it's both. I'm just saying uh, there's different ways to, to do it. It's meeting practical needs. Uh, my kids recently, about a month and a half ago, I had a brutal headache, one of the worst headaches of my life. Um, 
like a sinus headache situation and I was wrecked and they knew it and I'll just never forget it. Um, Clive came in the room and he's like, dad, do you want me to get you Tylenol downstairs? I'll bring you a cup of water and some Tylenol. I was like, oh man, that actually would be great. And then um, Olivia came in and she said, dad, can I pray for you? Um, for, for your headache to go away. And then Calvin also came in, and Calvin's not a big pray out loud guy. I uh, came in, he's like, can I, can I pray for you? And, and, and then he prayed for me, you know, quicker uh, than Olivia. And, uh, and then he said, Dad, can I shut this door so it'll be quiet for you? Uh, so you're, you know? And so they're, they're meeting these like, different aspects of caring for me and my headache in the best way that they could at their age. And so generosity is for all of us. We have different things to contribute or add, but man, this is for everyone. And for a maturing person, we start to see others' needs, not just our own. Immature people just see their needs all day long. They, they have no concern for the needs of others. And again, it's not just money. It could be a, a skill you have or a craft you have. This next one's kind of money mixed with craft. Uh, my mom right now, my mom's become a Christian. Um, I'm pretty sure, or she's close. She's definitely like wanting to follow Jesus. Um, and she lives in a rural place now. Um, her entire life, she lived in Boston and then in San Diego. And now she's like two hours from a Walmart. Like it's, it's I went there. I was like, this is crazy. Um, she's, like, I, she's like, I drove an hour to get you some sandwich stuff. I was like, you didn't have to do that. And that you're in a food desert, like a real food desert. But, um, uh, but my mom uh, lives in a very minimal income and long term. I don't know what's going to happen. Uh, but she lives in this place, and she's recently t- started taking care of my Nana, her mom. And my Nana's wild. My Nana's an Emmygram 7. She's 81. Uh, she, she, she's wild. Um, but she, uh, she can't really walk very well anymore. And, um, and, uh, and, I, and I found out, man, I was, I was, like, hearing about this from my mom. And then she said, but the, there's these men um, in the church here, and they got together, and they spent a day at her house a few months ago, and they built, like, a 20-foot ramp wouldn't ramp. That looks legit. Like, I would have thought they hired, like, a real construction team or whatever, uh, but, but some craftsmen in the church were like, this, we help build ramps for elderly people. Um, that is a way to meet the needs of the saints. My mom was so, so grateful, man. Um, and so if we lack financial resources, we can be generous with our time, our service, our abilities, on and on it goes. Expertise you have, um, but we're trying to help meet the needs of the saints. Now, a couple of principles about generosity within the church. Um, I, I do want to say a couple things. Uh, one is that no one should only be a recipient of generosity and never a giver of generosity, okay? Um, no one should be that for a couple different reasons. Um, one, it, does, it takes away people's dignity over time when we always do for them what they could do for themselves. I'm not talking about, I literally cannot do this myself. I need help. That's, that's a need where you need help, like we're talking about in the passage. Um, but we need to give people, uh, we need to walk alongside people to, to teach them um, to, to do the things they need to do at times. Um, uh, it can also keep people from growing up and maturing when we expect someone else. And this isn't just financial. Like I've seen this with uh, bad conflict management in the church where people always need other people to bail them out. They create a big mess and then they have like eight people involved uh, to fix it. Man, that, that's a sign of their immaturity. We want to pull them out of that over time. Um, so no one should be the recipient of, of generosity, but never a giver. Uh, now, I do want to say this. There are seasons where you will be the one who needs to receive more generosity than you can give. There will be seasons. You have a real health challenge, and you're going to need to receive more than you give, and that's okay. And it could be that way for years, potentially. But, but, but that's not the, the goal, uh, and that's not a place to, to live forever. Um, 
Also, no one should only be a giver of generosity and not a recipient. Um, for a couple reasons. One, it just leads to burnout, man. It leads to burnout. Um, it, it can make you live out of a savior complex. And a, a key um, idea of Christianity is that you're not the savior. Uh, Jesus is. And so you can have in a space where you're kind of killing yourself. I, uh, my spiritual director, uh, she has this joking line where she says, um, I just over, I, I tend to um, uh, exhibit what she calls pursuing behaviors, which is like, I, I feel like I need to keep everyone. I need to make everyone happy. I need, I need to meet everyone's need all the time and, and stuff. And, um, and she said, you know, it, it, like, just like it says in the Gospel of Luke, Andy, no one comes to the Father except through Andy. <laughs> And I was like, I don't think that's in there. She's like, but you live like it is. And so I've had to learn, man, you can't meet everything, right? Um, uh, again, it also keeps other people from maturing in generosity. Uh, other people can meet that need if you're always the one who meets it. Someone else might not. Now, again, if no one can and you see it and you're like, man, I want to do this and I'm able to, um, that's great. Um, but, um, but, you, but you shouldn't always only be the giver. The other thing I was going to say is some of us grow up in spaces and places where we weren't allowed to have needs, which isn't healthy. A phrase I hate is when people say, I didn't want to be a burden. And then they describe to me something that they could not do on their own and their life's falling apart. Because in the book of Galatians, it says, bear one another's burdens. It does say each one should carry their own load. Like there's stuff in life that you should be able to handle yourself, but there are things that are too big. The burdens are too heavy. And so I go, you don't want to be a burden. Well, I'm, you're keeping me from obeying the teaching of the New Testament. They go, I don't want to be a burden to you. Well, thanks for keeping me from being obedient to the Bible. Now, again, that's obviously not what their, their heart is when they do it, but what they're, what they're projecting is I have no needs, um, and then no one, you know, no one meets those needs, and then they're on their own, and they're suffering, and stuff's way harder than it should be. Does that make, I don't know if that makes sense. I just want to say your needs are valid. All humans have needs, and all humans are designed to have those needs met through relationships. Again, I'm not talking about an abusive person who just takes and takes and takes and never sees anyone else's needs. And, and I found that some of the most generous, kind, servant-hearted people are the most terrified of being like crazy narcissistic abusers. And I have to go, dude, you are so far from that. We've, we've got, I've had people like this. We've had, that's, that's not you. You haven't asked for any, you know, like there's people I've actually said to them, I would love to serve you someday. Let me serve you. It'd be an honor to serve you, to meet a practical need you have. And so I want to challenge some of you today. You may need help. You, you may need to be a recipient of generosity, but you have to, to, to share the fact that you have that need. Please hear me. It is not strength that says, I don't have needs. It's lies and dysfunction and idolatry. Okay? You all, we all have needs, guys. You're human. You are human. So what does this mean for a church family? Um, a couple things. It means we should expect people to ask us to help meet their needs. Um, we shouldn't be offended by that. Why would you want me to help you? Well, I, just, I just come for, I'm, I'm here for the sermon. I'm here for the meeting. I'm, I'm here to, I like to just have friends that don't require anything of me. I don't want to be involved in your life. By the way, we might, always, we might not always be able to meet those needs, but we shouldn't be offended that people around us can't take care of themselves completely. That's, an Amer that's American logic, not biblical logic. Please hear me. The Bible's not an American book. 
It's an ancient Middle Eastern document written to a communal culture. This like pull yourself up by your boot, that's not, that's not it. There's no self-made man in the Bible. And there's no self-made man in, in America or woman. Everyone has a ton of people that helped them over time. By the way, it's not a political comment. It's a, it's a worldview comment. People around you who, who have needs, um, they're not called to do it all by themselves. You know what's remarkable to me? I'll just comment on this. I didn't plan on this, which is always dangerous. As you read the Gospels, Jesus lets humans meet his needs. Like he let Mary breastfeed him. He allowed himself to be a baby, to be dependent. And then as he goes through life, um, I don't know if you guys know this, women funded Jesus' traveling ministry. Just think about that for a second. He go, ah, I'm a, I'm a man, I'm independent, I'm whatever. It's like, yeah, he had a, all, a lot of privilege in his society. He, he let women pay his bills and didn't think it was whack. He let people host him. With the woman caught in adultery, there is a beautiful moment where he lets her know, hey, um, hey I know everything about you and I love you and da-da-da. But, but there's also a moment of dignity where he says, hey, can I have some of that water you have? She's like, I'm a woman, I'm a Samaritan, I have nothing of value. He's like, you have, you have value. That's happening there too. He lets people meet his needs. Um, Another thing about generosity, so, so again, don't be ashamed to ask. Again, that's more American than it is biblical. Um, we shouldn't uh, uh, give gifts with strings attached. If I do this, you owe me. That's not called generosity. It's called manipulation or emotional or financial abuse. It gets real extreme. Um, also, like, don't give a gift if you need public props for the gift. Again, it, it just takes away the, the dignity of the person involved. I'll never forget, uh, as a church, um, our very first Give Love was at Christmas, and, and I think we raised like $10,000, and we bought Visa gift cards, or Toys R Us gift cards, for the, the kids at, at Primetime, which is the after-school program at Adams Elementary, where we used to be, and, and most of the kids that are in Primetime are, um, they do for, come from families that, that don't have a ton of money. And, uh, and the principal said, that's probably the best way to discern the families that are in need in our, in our, our school. And so I'll never forget, we, we, we got these cards, we wanted to help. Um, and I remember it was so important to us that we gave the cards to the parents, not to, not to the kids, and not to the parents in front of the kids, because we want to give those parents dignity to go buy stuff themselves for those kids. Does that make sense? It's so, so, so important. Um, and so if you, you're like, I need props for this, uh, this would violate the teaching of Jesus on generosity. This is when you give, don't make a big show out of it. It's not how, by the way, it's also not how the, the generosity of the gospel works. If it's not a strings-attached situation. Uh, I recently had to tell a, a member of my own family. Uh, I was, like, dealing with stuff in my past, and uh, I was dealing with a member of my family. And actually, working stuff through the counselor, like, I realized I had to ask this person to not buy me gifts anymore. Because they use the gifts as a leverage relationally. What I mean, I don't know if you've ever experienced this before. What would happen is uh, this person would mistreat me, and then what they would do is they would go, uh, and then I'd say, hey, man, I, I felt really hurt. Or, hey, hey, you know, hey, I felt really hurt that you did this. And then they would say, so you don't appreciate what I did five years ago? And I bought that shirt for you or whatever. And I'm like, I, 
I, I don't think these are connected. Uh, I can be grateful for that. Also, you're being a jerk in this moment. That's how relationships are. And, um, and, and so I got to space where I'd rather give it to the point where, like, I talked to my counselors, like, hey, you can't buy me meals. Like, that's kind of where we're at. Because uh, I'd rather not have that. It, again, it's like maybe they feel taken advantage of or whatever. It's like I can't have that in this relationship. So I had to do that. And I just want to say, gifts with strings attached to you guys are not gifts. Okay? Shaming someone because they have needs is not generosity. <laughs> Does that make sense? It's got to be a free act, just like the, the act of Jesus. At the same time, though, again, we need to ask for help directly, not in indirect ways that people can miss. Don't hint about your needs or expect people to just know them. Another thing that kills me, it's kind of the other side of the spectrum, it's the person who doesn't want to ask, and uh, instead of, like, making their life really hard for themselves, instead what they do is that happens, but then they judge everyone. Why didn't you uh, call me? Why didn't you meet with me? Why didn't you, uh, you know, offer me money? Why didn't you? And I'm like, I didn't know. And why didn't you reach out? You see what I'm saying? And so we have to have the maturity to say, hey, I have this need. Not to go, hey, it'd be kind of nice if uh, I had somewhere to go for Thanksgiving. School man, you, you know, I have a complex, you know. Uh, but you go, hey, could, could I do this? Would this be possible? So we don't handle our needs. Also, we, don't, we ask for help. We don't demand help. Okay? We don't go, you have to meet my need in this way at this time, you personally. Again, that's manipulation, super unhealthy. If you loved me, you would do X. No. It's, it's not, not how we uh, approach it. A healthy church family is generous. We share our stuff with each other. That has always been a marker of the church. The Roman emperor, Julian, one of the fiercest persecutors of the Christian church, uh, he once said this in disgust, by the way. He said, the Christian cause has been specially advanced through the loving service rendered to strangers. It is a scandal that there is not a single one who is a beggar in the church. And that the godless Galileans, as Christians, care not only for their own poor, but for ours as well, while those who belong to us look in vain for the help that we should render to them. He's like, they take care of their family and people in our family. The Romans. The pagans. Tim Keller writes, he says, The early Christians were a community known for radical giving. Dognetus, uh, quoted below, was not a Christian, but an opponent of Christianity, who was listing the things that made it so frustrating to refute the Christian heresy. Like, he wanted to slam the church and mock them, but he couldn't because of the way they lived. And he writes this. He says, They share their table with all, but not their bed with all. They are poor and make many rich. They are short of everything and yet have plenty of things. And again, he says they, they shared their table, but not their bed. The, the Roman Empire was a very sexually permissive culture. I know we're like, it's cra- it was way crazier. Um, and so he said they would share their, their, their bodies and have these crazy parties and all this wild stuff. Um, but at the same time, people wouldn't share their stuff. They were greedy with their stuff, but promiscuous with their bodies. And Keller says the Christians were promiscuous with their money. And stingy with their bodies. I was, at a, I was at Dark Horse yesterday in Golden Hill. And in front of me was this young couple. I, they, they, I really don't think they were married. They were very young. I mean, it would be a very 
yeah, teen marriage situation. Um, but maybe they were. I don't know. I don't judge them. Uh, but whatever. They're, they're doing their thing. They, they were big PDA people, all right? They're all over each other. We're, like, in line at a coffee shop. I'm like, dude, take it easy. Come on, guys. If I had my kids with me, I would have been, you know, covering their eyes. You're young, like you're not married, whatever. Now, here's what was funny. All over each other. You didn't know where he began and she ended and he, she began and, and he ended. And, and then as they get to the counter to order, hard separation. <laughs> that guy was like, ooh, thank you. I'll have a coffee for me. Moves on over. And then she orders her thing. But Chris, man, they, they, share, uh, they share their, their tables, uh, not just their beds. And so it's kind of the culture we're in again. People are super selfish with their stuff but they'll connect with people as much as it feels good to them. Again, Keller continues, Unlike their neighbors, Christians were promiscuous with their money, not their bodies. They shared their possessions in a proportion and with a joy that the surrounding materialistic culture has never seen. This radical generosity began immediately after the resurrection when selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. They did not consider that any of their possessions were their own. And so... Um, yeah, I think this is helpful, so revisit it. Um, so Roman society, again, is this sexually permissive culture, much more than ours was. As a matter of fact, wealthy Roman men were allowed to sleep with anyone who had a lower social status than them. It was the teaching of Jesus and Paul that condemned sexual exploitation and pointed to God's original intent for our sexuality, which is intimacy and commitment and pleasure and nurturing of life, mutual pleasure, which was scandalous in that society. Sex was for men only, essentially. The enjoyment piece. And so what's condemned today as sexually repressive was viewed in the Roman Empire as a radical position that liberated oppressed, exploited people. And so the church stood out not only, though, for its sexual ethic. I want you to see this, that many, would want, would, that many would view today as conservative, but also for its social ethic that would look liberal today. And so the church was impossible to put into neat political categories. They stood out as a culture within a culture. But again, as the letter of Romans reminds us over and over again, this culture came somewhere. It's in response to something. True generosity is the fruit of having received generosity. And so that's where I want to land today is this received generosity. Friends, the reason we can meet the needs of one another in our church is because we know what it is to have our needs met by another if we're truly a follower of Jesus. The Christianity is not I work my way up to get into God's good graces. It's Jesus did what I could not do for myself. That's what it means to become a follower of Jesus. And so I know you don't want to ask people for help, this is a way bigger ask for help in the gospel. If you have done that, you can ask for help in this community. On the flip side, if you have received that kind of help, you shouldn't be annoyed when others ask for that help to meet those needs. So what I want to do right now, I want to call Marielle up, and I want us to, to contemplate that act of help, that need being met by Jesus going to the cross in our place for us, doing what we could not do for ourselves, paying a bill we could not pay, cleaning up a mess that we made ourselves. So I'm going to go ahead and pray. Jesus, I thank you that you are the ultimate meter of the needs of the saints. 
I thank you that you went out of your way to pursue meeting those needs. There's a real breakdown in, in some of our abilities to mirror your love because some of it's just stuff that only you do and only you could do. For example, we, in healthy relationships, we, we, we have to ask for people to meet our needs and then they have a decision whether or not they can meet those needs or not. But we were too weak to even ask. If we're honest, we often were stuck in spaces of, of, of ignorance and disobedience and pride. We had so much need, but we didn't see it. We made so much, we made such a big mess. We thought we could clean it up ourselves. And Jesus, you came and, and, and you showed us a new way. You came, you met us where we were at. And you're loving us out of our brokenness one step at a time. But that process begun in a place and space and time, a very specific place, on a hill, on a cross, naked, bloodied, broken, taking on our mess, taking on our shame, taking on our guilt, meeting our truest needs, covering our guilt, taking away our shame, being our reconciliation, doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. I, I pray as we take communion this morning that we'd remember what you did to commune with us. We'd remember the fact that you met our greatest need. And in light of that, it'd be a joy to meet the needs of others. I pray, God, for those who think they're not important enough to have their needs met. They don't want to make waves. They, for some reason, they've got this internal belief that their needs don't matter. God, would you show them you are made in my image. You matter. I see you. I know you. And others long to see you and know you so they can love you as you ought to be loved. But they can't because you won't let them in. God, would you call people out to see that their needs matter, that they matter. On the flip side, for those who believe that only they matter, they're not worried about how their actions impact others. They think their stuff is their stuff and it is what it is and they're smarter than everyone other, or they, they think I got here all by myself and they miss the fact that you decided when and where they would be born, the family, the nations, the gifting, the mind they have, the opportunities they had along the way. Would you show them that, man, it's all grace. Would you humble them and make them people who long to build into the lives of others like Jesus did? Would we not be too proud to, to give, but would we not be too proud to receive? Again, Jesus, it's remarkable that you let fallible, broken, messed up, jacked up, burnt out, every adjective I can think of, just weak people meet your needs. And then you met our greatest one. And so, Lord, would this gospel story infect our hearts and the way we approach life, and money and time and energy and emotion and space and place. And God, would we not be a codependent church where we're forced to meet needs, but would we not be an independent church where we don't meet any needs, but God, would we be an interdependent community, freely giving 
and receiving in healthy ways because we have received the greatest, healthiest gift in Jesus. And so as we go to communion, would we remember you meeting our need? Thank you for forgiving each and every one of these precious people this morning in a fresh way. Your mercies really are new every morning. And the grace that you pour out really is lavish. We need your grace this morning and thanks for it. In your name we pray. Amen.